Uh, I don't know. I, I think topical sermons have a place. Uh, we've just been, di- we did a series of topical sermons on our values, if you were with us, and I think that was good. I think those are good, but I, when I do a topical sermon, I always feel a little like I'm f- walking on a tightrope or something, you know? It's like, uh, because the tendency when you do topical sermons is to like just pick out verses that say what you want them to say, and you got a whole book, a big book to find those things. You have lots of versions that can find the exact thing that you want to say. Instead of saying what the text has said, I, I try to avoid that. I pray that I don't do that, even in topical sermons, but it's a, it's a temptation. But when you get into the study of a, a book where you're going to do the whole thing, you're going to read the whole passage, you're, you're kind of curtailed. I feel much more on solid ground when I'm preaching from a book. And so that takes us to Daniel. And I want to begin by sharing three reasons why I decided on this book. First, I want us to understand, I want us to have this in our DNA, uh, the importance of the Old Testament. It's been a while since we focused on an Old Testament book. Uh, in 2016, if you remember, we summarized, did 52 weeks summary of the whole Bible in our History of Redemption series, so a lot of that was in the Old Testament. I've also preached on several uh, psalms through the last couple years. We've did a summer of psalms and things like that. And also every Sunday, almost every Sunday I would say, I turn to the Old Testament to reinforce the truths that we find in the New Testament. But our last venture into a book in the Old Testament was way back in 2014, where we did a series, I think it was only four or five weeks even, on the book of Ruth. We've done Ruth, we've done Jonah, like these little short ones. We did the life of Abraham, so that was the, a section out of Genesis. But uh, in doing this, you might get the impression, because we do focus on the New Testament more, you might get the impression that I believe, or the church believes, that the Old Testament is less important than the New. But that's not the case. If you're here in 2016 uh, for our History of Redemption series, you know, I hope, that the Bible, the whole thing, is the story of God's redemption of a fallen, sinful people, humanity. And this story, it climaxes and becomes very clear in the New Testament. Uh, Some people call this not the progress of redemption. More and more is revealed as you go on and it climaxes in the coming of Christ. But the Old Testament has a crucial role to play as well. We know this for many reasons, uh, including what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. In your notes and on the screen, I only have verses 45 through 47, but I want to back up to verse 44. Jesus said... Uh, beginning in verse 44 of Luke chapter 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. Uh, The New Testament didn't actually exist. Luke's writing it at this point, at least his part. And he said to them, This is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
So according to Jesus, the Old Testament is about Jesus. His suffering, his death, his resurrection, and the gospel of repentance and forgiveness going forth to the nations. It's about Jesus. It's about the Great Commission, if you will, even. This is Luke's uh, version of the Great Commission. So as we look at the book of Daniel, we'll not only see the story of Daniel and others, real people who lived over 2,600 years ago, but we'll also see God's story of redemption through Jesus Christ. So the first reason I chose Daniel was because I wanted us to see the importance of the Old Testament, see Christ in the Old Testament, and you might be thinking, but why Daniel? It's only one of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Well, the next two reasons will answer that question. The second reason I chose Daniel because it shows us the example of elect exiles. Daniel is a perfect follow-up to the New Testament book we most recently studied, which was 1 Peter. Right. Thanks for being here today. Uh, Remember, Peter was writing to Christians, uh, Christians that were scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in verse 1, he addresses his readers like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to Peter, Christians are elect exiles. By God's mercy and through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, we are elect, chosen by God. As Sean pointed out last week, thank you for preaching, for blowing my mind. Sean blew my mind, the infinite blowing of... uh, As children of God, we are destined to receive a glorious, infinite inheritance from our Father in heaven. But for now, we're also exiles. We live in a world that is not our home. We are citizens of heaven, but we remain for a time in this world, which is not heaven and will not be heaven. And as you hopefully remember, Peter's letter was meant to give encouragement and instructions for living faithfully as elect exiles. And one of Daniel's purposes is to tell the story of a number of faithful elect exiles. As we read Daniel, uh, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were among those taken captive by the Babylonians. They were taken from their home, Jerusalem, to Babylon to serve in the king's palace. Here's a map of their exile. They went about 900 miles, which is a little more than traveling across the state of Texas. If you've ever done that from tip to tip, it takes a long time. It's like the states are flying by and then you get to Texas. Oh, crud. You never get out of Texas. Uh, Sorry, Dad. My dad's from Texas. They were exiles in a foreign land, far from home, and Daniel records how they lived faithfully before God. So they provide us with examples for living faithfully as exiles in this world. As they stand up for their beliefs in the midst of a pagan society, we'll find much personal application as our society becomes increasingly pagan itself. So seeing the example of exiles living in a pagan society is the second reason I wanted us to study the book of Daniel. 
Now, the third and most important reason is not, so we'll understand all of Daniel's prophecy, it's not to help us figure out the whens and whats of the end times. We'll certainly touch on those. We're not going to skip them. But the main reason I want us to study the book of Daniel, and what I believe is the main reason for the book and for the prophecies in the book, is because we get a clear picture, a clear vision, and understanding of the sovereignty of God in an unbelieving world. As Daniel and his friends live as elect exiles in a fallen sinful world, a world that does not acknowledge worship, or glorify the one true God, we'll see over and over God's sovereignty at work. We'll see that God rules and is in ultimate control over all things. And as we look at the prophecy contained in this book, I pray we'll come, come away understanding that God's sovereignty over the world extends throughout all history. It extends to this very day. Because that my friends, is what we need to live based on today. Our world is continually and increasingly rejecting God, His Word, His ways, and the results are devastating. Crime, wars, a big war happening these days. Have you heard about it? Violence. There was another mass shooting, if you haven't heard, in New York yesterday. We see divisions in families, division in our nation, confusion and lies about the most basic truths, truths about sex and marriage, truths about what it means to be male and female, truths about the value of an unborn life, and so, and so much more that we're confronted with on a daily basis. Isaiah's warning seems to be meant specifically for our world today, for our nation. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. As we live in this world that often calls evil good and good evil, we might think that God is no longer in control, that God is allowing evil to win, that he has, he's powerless against the evil in our world, but that is not the case. In the book of Daniel, in this book, we not only find young men who could have thought the same things, they've been taken from their homes to serve a pagan king. They could have thought that evil had won, that God had forsaken them, but instead they rightly trust in him. They trust in God who, in the midst of a pagan world, is still on the throne, is still acting on their behalf, on the behalf of His people and on the behalf of others, as we will see. And that's the message I want us to, uh, to bring to us as we study the book of Daniel, the sovereignty of God in an unbelieving world. And so that takes us to our message for today. In Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced not only to our uh, main characters, main human characters, exiles living in an unbelieving Babylonian world, but more importantly, we're introduced to the God who's working in their midst. Three times, verse uh, uh, 2, I knew it if I tried, 9 and 17 I believe, we see the phrase, God or the Lord gave. 
This signifies that God is present and sovereignly at work in Babylon. And that's the first thing we see. The first thing we see is this. God works nationally. That's our first main point for this morning. God is at work among the nations. In the Old Testament, God's focus was on the nation Israel. But as we will see, and in other places in the Old Testament, God focuses also on the nations. Now, a note uh, for this study in Daniel, we're going to probably cover larger sections than we're used to when we do the New Testament, the epistles, because they're stories, and you sort of have to cover the whole story Some of them are long, and so I probably won't have people read the passage, the whole passage beforehand. I'll read the whole chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter of Daniel 1 today as we go through the message, but it probably would be good if before you come, I know you didn't do this this time, or maybe some of you did, you read the the chapter that we're going to be in that week. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 2, maybe cover the whole chapter. Uh, This week, we're going to cover the whole chapter 1, so maybe for next week, prepare by reading chapter 2. Okay? Because if we read it all once and then I read it again, it's going to make our time uh, a little longer. So in verses 1 and 2 of Daniel, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Everybody know besieged, he surrounded it. Nobody come in and out. Goods can't come in and out. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar in the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God. These two verses give us not only the historical data, but the theological explanation of the defeat of the kingdom of Judah. Historically, the kingdom of Israel... Which, which thrived under King David, sort of began, in a sense, under King Saul, thrived under King David, and his son Solomon, was, after the death of Solomon, divided into two kingdoms. Israel, they retain the name, Israel in the north, ten tribes, and then Judah in the south. Uh, Judah and, oh, escaped me. Judah and one of the other tribes. Benjamin. That good last-born Benjamin. Uh, Judah was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin in the south. Now the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, was defeated by the Assyrians in 721 BC. But the kingdom of Judah survived for another 116 years approximately until 605 BC. The, 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 The numbers get lower this is B.C., the numbers get lower as you come to Christ, and then they get higher after Christ, just in case you're not up on that. So historically, Judah's defeat took place in several waves. Daniel 1.1, that we just read, depicts the historical events of 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian troops conquered and subjugated Jerusalem. This was the first wave of Judah's defeat. So that's the history. But notice, along with the historical data, the author, which is probably Daniel, wants to make sure we see that God was not asleep at the wheel. In fact, he was at the center of Judah's defeat. 
Why did Jehoiakim surrender to Babylon and why were the temple vessels taken? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. The Lord gave. This is the first, as I mentioned, of of this chapter's three specific interventions by the Lord. Judah's defeat was not just the product of a superior Babylonian military. No, the Lord gave Jehoiakim up to Nebuchadnezzar. Right at the beginning of Daniel's book, we're told that Israel's God is the Lord who directs nations as he wills. And in the case of Judah, his will was their defeat. Why? Well, in answering that question, we see God's faithful sovereignty. God's faithful sovereignty. In giving up Judah to Babylon, the Lord is simply uh, being faithful to his words spoken in the past. In Leviticus chapter 26, Yahweh, the Lord, has spelled out several general blessings. This is in the law. He's giving general blessings and curses for his covenant with Israel. There are blessings for keeping God's commandments, for walking with the Lord, and curses for breaking them, for rebelling against him, including what we find in verse 17 of Leviticus 26, where the Lord says to Israel, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence upon you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. So in Leviticus 26, among other things, it has some good stuff. And then here's what happens if you obey. Here's what happens if you don't. God gives a general promise that if Israel rebelled against him, He would deliver them into the hands of their enemies. Which happened in the north, 100 years prior, and now is happening in the south. And then specifically, uh, in 705 BC, following the defeat of Israel in the north by Assyria, so uh, it's 705, Israel in the north has been defeated by this massive Assyrian army. Isaiah speaks, and he chastises King Hezekiah, king of Judah at the time, for joining in an alliance with, guess who? Babylon. Instead of God, Hezekiah trusts a pagan king, a kingdom, to protect Judah against another pagan kingdom. And through the prophet Isaiah, God says to Hezekiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your forefathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father and shall be, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Clearly, God has a sense of irony. Trusting in Babylon might save you from Assyria, but it won't save you from Babylon. Fast forward 100 years, 605 BC, and that prophecy or you could even call it a promise, is being fulfilled. God is faithful to His promises. Now, we tend to think of God's faithfulness uh, in more positive terms, but sometimes His faithfulness is seen by the fulfillment of a negative, if you will, promise. And that's what we find recorded in these two verses of Daniel. Because of Judah's rebellion against and rejection of God, they must experience God's sovereign faithfulness 
to his negative promises given in Leviticus 26 and Isaiah 39. Now, what does this say to us? God's faithful sovereignty should bring hope and joy to some, but great fear to others. God will fulfill all his promises, both positive and negative. And so for those who've trusted in Christ, we can have surety and joy in the promise of eternal life in his presence in heaven, that infinite Exciting, wonderful place that Sean spoke of last week. That's ours. Have joy that God will fulfill that promise. He's faithful. But for those who haven't trusted in Christ, there should be fear. Because there are other promises. Promises of eternal death and destruction away from God's presence in hell. So you must ask yourself, which promise do I want God to fulfill in my life? And the thing is, you you can decide. You can even today give your life to Jesus Christ. Trust in His death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And move from fear, honest, true fear, to joy in the Lord. Move from heaven, excuse me, from hell to heaven. Knowing God is faithful to all His promises. Amen? Amen. So we see God's faithful sovereignty. But there's something else I want us to see here. And this, and this I hope, drives us closer to Him. I mean, if, you're, if you don't have a relationship with Him, it, it helps you to uh, go to Him, to trust in Him. And if you do, it, you grow in this relationship with who this God is. And that is God's humble sovereignty. The words humble and sovereignty do not uh, seem to fit together, right? We think... Uh, of sovereign, the sovereign ruler of all. We think of one who's in control of all things, and humility doesn't seem to go with that. But that's what we find here in Daniel verse 2, chapter 1. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's, and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, he, Nebuchadnezzar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The Lord not only gives Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, but also vessels, items, doesn't say what they are, things from his own house, from the house of God, from the temple of God. Nebuchadnezzar took these vessels from the temple of God with him to Shinar, another, just another name for Babylon. He then placed him in, in the house, the treasury of his God, his gods, if you will. And don't miss the fact that this is the Lord's doing. The Lord gave some of the vessels of the house of God to Nebuchadnezzar. And what makes this astonishing is that in the ancient Near East, the fortunes of a God and a people were intertwined. They were linked. If someone saw, if you're observing this from, from outside, from, from wherever, and you saw that Judah's king and temple vessels were taken... Uh, you would interpret it to mean that Judah's God was not able to protect him, was not able to protect his kingdom, not able to protect his own vessels. If the people were losers, it meant their God was a loser, much like the Olympics. If an athlete representing a nation loses an event, we say uh, his or her nation lost, China lost, 
Germany lost. The U.S. lost. So the Lord knew how it would seem when he gave his king, his people, and the temple vessels into Babylonian hands. Pagans would be singing, praise Maraduke, the chief god of Babylon, from whom all blessings flow. But in his sovereignty, God allowed, or more accurately caused, it to happen. Which is why his sovereignty is humble. God wills to suffer shame, be humbled, if it might awaken his people to their own danger, to their own difficult situation, to the situation therein. Judah had rejected God, and that was the worst possible thing that could happen to them, not captivity in Babylon. They could have continued and uh, continued on and on in their sinful ways from generation to generation, but for their sake, God causes them to be defeated, which will ultimately lead to their repentance and to return to the land. Nehemiah and Ezra record this. Maybe we'll go there next. So God in his sovereignty is willing uh, to be humbled for the sake of his people. God in his sovereignty is willing to be humbled for the sake of his people. Does that sound familiar at all? We see the same tendency in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Cursed are those who hang from the tree humbled. We have a sovereign God seen both in the Old Testament and the New who's willing to suffer shame and ridicule in order to work for the repentance and transformation of His chosen people. And this is a good word for us. God works in disobedient Judah, in pagan Babylon, and in an increasingly disobedient pagan United States of America. So as we lament the direction of our nation, as we become increasingly divided as a people, we can trust God who is both faithful and humble to work so that His sovereign purposes are accomplished in this world and in our lives as they were in Daniel's. And even though His sovereign purposes have... I hope this isn't too bad news for you. His sovereign purposes might not mean health and wealth and security for the United States of America any more than it meant those things for Judah. We can assure, be assured that God is at work for the good of His people. We see this clearly in the rest of the chapter. We've seen God work nationally in Judah, in Babylon. Now let's see that God works individually. God works in and through nations, and God works in and through individuals, through people. We're going to see this throughout the book of uh, Daniel. Actually, we're going to see both of these things throughout the book of Daniel. But it begins here in chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. After Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Judah, we read, starting in verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, 
to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldees. Chaldeans. Babylon's king wanted candidates from Israel to work for him. Youths who were politically elite, physically impressive, intellectually acute, socially poised. In short, they, 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 they must have status, looks, brains, and presence. Sounds like a, like a beauty contest. The, the poise, the beauty. And they were to undergo a total Babylonian makeover. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. In these verses, we have summarized the Babylonian assimilation program. These youths are to be educated or indoctrinated into a new culture. They are appeased by new luxury, uh, food and drink fit for a king. And they're challenged with a new identity, given new Babylonian names. Forget the old. Forget where you came from. You're Babylonian now. Nebuchadnezzar is putting on the full court press to transform these youths into useful subjects of his Babylonian empire. And as you might imagine, all this attention and focus on the things of Babylon could have become overwhelming, even intoxicating, which may be why Daniel chose to draw the line. In verse 8 we read, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel resolved. That word resolve means to firmly set, to set in place. It's a done deal. And what's not obvious in our English translation is that this same word occurs twice in the verse prior. The same word, Hebrew word translated resolved. Verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs gave, set, resolved, same word, them names. Daniel, he called, set, resolved, same word, Belteshazzar. The overseer of Babylon, uh, assimilation imposes his agenda on these captives. He sets new Babylonian names for them. But Daniel has set in it upon his heart that he will not defile himself with the king's food allotment. Now what was wrong with the royal food? Some think the problem was dietary. Food from the royal table likely included meats that were off limits, unclean for Israelites. This, however, doesn't explain why Daniel rejected the wine. Others think the objection was religious. The food may have first been offered to idols. But later in verse 12, we see that Daniel's, we see Daniel requests vegetables, and, and what would guarantee that the vegetables weren't also offered to idols? Still others hold that the difficulty was symbolic. 
Sharing the king's food was a sign of dependence and loyalty to the king. But Daniel's alternative vegetable diet would have also been uh, from the king, government issue. It would have been impossible to avoid dependence on Babylon. So it's difficult to say exactly why Daniel made this particular resolution. It may have involved all of those things. But ultimately, I think Daniel was concerned and fed up, pun intended. See, Phyllis gets it, right? Fed up with his Babylonian indoctrination. He may well have thought, there's a real danger here. I could get sucked into all of this. He recognized that if Babylon gets into you, it's over. Therefore, he had to draw the line at some point to preserve some distinctiveness, to keep from becoming totally squeezed into Babylon's mold. The InterVarsity Press Bible background commentary sums it up well. It is not so much something in the food that defiles as much as it is the total program of assimilation. At this point, the Babylonian government is exercising control over every aspect of their lives. They have little means to resist the forces of assimilation that are controlling them. They seize on one of the few areas where they can still exercise choice as an opportunity to preserve their distinct identity. So they wanted to remember who they are. They wanted to remember who their God was. So Babylon is seeking to assimilate Daniel and his friends, but Daniel, in great wisdom, resolves to resist. So, nerd alert here. Unlike the Borg of Star Trek, Daniel did not believe that. Say it. Thank you. (laughs) He did not believe resistance is futile. And so, in the second half of verse 8, we read, Therefore... He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel goes to his boss, the the big boss, and asks him this special favor to not defile himself with the king's food. And to get the needed response, Daniel requires intervention from God. He needs God to work on his behalf. Now God had certainly already been working in Daniel's heart and mind, giving him wisdom and understanding to say uh, this far and no farther. But God must also work for Daniel. And that takes us to verse 9. And the second sovereign intervention by God into an individual's life. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God works in in such a way that Daniel is seen as, as special, deserving favor, deserving compassion, and we might think that, that, uh, that, that because of God's work, everything would be smooth sailing from that point forward. Well, if you've read the next verse or the rest of Daniel, you realize that's not the case. But in verse 10 we read, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So, so you would endanger my head with the king. He's worried about his own head. Daniel's boss, it seems, denies his request. He apparently felt some compassion for Daniel, but he didn't want to risk uh, losing his head, if you will, royal rage by countering one of the king's orders. But that doesn't stop Daniel. He's resolved, set, not to defile himself. 
I believe this initial refusal by the chief of the eunuchs was a test for Daniel. God gave Daniel favor, but God also wanted to test his resolve. And we see Daniel's resolve in verses 11 through 14. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances and the appearances of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. So the, 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 the lower guy goes to the next guy and he's, he's okay to risk it for ten days. So nerd alert two, Daniel believed in the Galaxy Quest motto, which is... Never give up, never surrender. Glad you came today. Never give up, never surrender. So Daniel came up with a plan B. He went down a notch in the chain of command, and he proposed a trial run 10 days with the steward. The steward agreed, and at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they, Daniel and the four, the three guys, were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. It turned out that Daniel and his friends not only survived the test, but they thrived. God worked in such a way that they were fatter in flesh. That's the only time in the world that's a good thing, to be fatter in flesh, than all the youths who, were at the king's, who ate the king's food. So the 10-day the test became a way of life. Uh, this story highlights both Daniel's humble resolve and God's sovereign grace at work together. Daniel was resolved, but he was first refused. And in humility, he didn't throw a fit. He didn't bemoan his terrible circumstances in Babylon. He simply regrouped and called, uh, called up, came up with a plan B. It's as if Daniel is fully aware that he's under the sovereign grace of the Lord. And it's grace that's the basis of this whole passage. By God's grace, Daniel had the wisdom and resolve to not be defiled. By God's grace, Daniel receives the humble persistence when he's refused. By God's grace, Daniel receives favor in the eyes of his overseers. And by God's grace, Daniel and his friends come through the 10-day test with flying colors. And the grace continues in verse 17. This is the third intervention by God in this chapter. As for these four youths, these uh, ones we've read their names, we've talked about them, the ones that resolved to, to not eat from the king's table, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Again, we see the grace of God at work. God gave these four youths knowledge and skills, literature, wisdom, and Daniel himself understanding in visions and dreams, and the results are found in verses 18 through 20. At the end of the time, When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So at the end of the prescribed uh, uh, re-education program, these guys meet with the king for their oral exams, their interviews, and they find uh, that these four are far ten times better. They're just far and above these other, uh, the other, the magicians, the enchanters, the, the guys that were already in the court, not just the others, whoever was going through the indoctrination program, but the guys that were already through it and serving the king. And so they enter the king's service. By God's grace at work in these youths, he begins to turn the tables on what we've read in verses 1 and 2. At the beginning of the story, we find captives uh, from a subjugated nation. But here, these very captives stand at the head of the palace royal service. In verses 1 and 2, we read of Judah's shameful defeat, including the taking of her temple vessels. While here, we meet victory of Judah's captives as they serve the throne. By God's grace at work among His people, things are changing. The losers are becoming winners. And what's fascinating is the winners are being prepared to assist their captors. God's work in these youth seems intended to prove beneficial for those in Babylon. If you've read the book, we'll see next week in chapter 2, it's because of Daniel's God-given dream interpretation ability that Nebuchadnezzar's uh, religious uh, magicians, the, these other guys, conjurers. It's because of Daniel that they all keep their heads. They would all be dead without Daniel. And in chapters 2, 3, and 4, we see how God, Daniel and company speak God's revelation and truth into Nebuchadnezzar's life. And we see how he's transformed. God's purposes involve more than simply the fate of these Judean exiles. They were to bear witness in Babylon. And this is how God works. This is how God works in us as we live in exiles in this world, as exiles here. He gives us grace in so many ways. Grace to remain humble, I hope. Humble in the face of divisions and confusion. Grace to overcome pain and suffering and trials. Grace to avoid sin, to live in obedience to Him. Grace to not be tempted to fall into the things of this world. Sometimes grace, favor in the eyes of our family and friends, and so much more. God gives us exactly what we need. And God's purpose in giving us grace is not just so we would have grace. I think we think that all too often. Hey, I got this grace. I made it through this trial. I didn't have to go through that tile by the grace of God. It's so God gives it to us so we might share what He's given with others. That we might bring Him glory by testifying to His grace to those in our world. All, that's what happens with Daniel and company, we'll see. Always remembering that sometimes, as in the life of Daniel and the three guys... God allows hardship to enter our lives because He wants His mercy to enter the lives of others through us. 
Or put simply, God blesses us. He works in us, even in trials, in difficulties, giving us grace, not simply for our sake, so that, but so that we might be a blessing to others. So we've seen that God works nationally and individually. And there's one final note we can't miss. That is, God works persistently. The final verse of chapter 1, it, it seems like uh, maybe a throwaway, a footnote. It says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In verse 21, the writer has pushed the fast-forward button 66 years into the future. Who was Cyrus? He was the king of Persia who began reigning in 539 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has passed from the scene. Kings always seem to die. And what of Babylon? It fell. To whom? To Cyrus and the Persians. Uh, do you see what's going on? Mighty Babylon, of verses 1 through 20, has fallen, but God's servant Daniel continues. At that time, Daniel would probably be over 80 years old. But this, isn't, this is more than a statement about Daniel's longevity. The verse, the verse is kind of a parable, as if to say, kingdoms rise and fall, but by His grace, God's people persist. Daniel is a, an example of the truth Isaiah proclaims, who, who, God who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. So in verse 21, Babylon, once ruler of the earth, was withered and had blown away. While fragile Daniel, servant of the Most High, is still standing. And that bit of information is what we need to get a grip on as we proceed to the rest of this book. Remember that God's sovereign grace is at work in this world. The people of God will simply out-endure the kingdoms of this world, of this age. So as nations are divided and nations rage war against nations, as people turn from the living God to their own confused evil ways, and even as God's people, elect exiles, experience hardship and difficulties, even persecution, never, never forget God is at work. His faithfulness, His humility, His grace, His persistence, and so much more is at work in the nations of this world and in the lives of His people. As Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and I close with these words, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of His glory. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank You for Your assurance here in Your Word, both in the Old Testament and the New, that You're in control, that You're sovereign, that You're sovereign, even in the most difficult of difficult times, even in defeat, even in exiledom, even being taken off Your land, and You're in control. You're there. You're by their side. You're by these exile sides. And you're by our side, Father. And I pray we would know that. And I pray we would know our purpose. We would know that we're your people. That you're in control of our lives. 
And Lord, as we go from this place, we would seek to be used by you in our world, that we would be seek to, to be a blessing as you have blessed us. In Christ's name, amen.